Well, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is James 1, 22 to 27. Let's begin by reading the passage in its context, starting in verse 19 and continuing through verse 27. James writes this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In the practice of medicine, there's a phenomenon known as the placebo effect. You've probably heard uh, heard of it before. Uh, The way the placebo effect works is like this. A doctor will administer a pill. And there's nothing in the pill that's of any real medicinal value. It's more or less the equivalent of a sugar pill. Still, the doctor will administer this sugar pill. And after taking the pill, the patient will, oddly enough, almost immediately start to feel better. The pill, of course, has nothing in it that will actually cure that patient's disease. If a person has cancer, the placebo won't make it go away. If they have a broken bone, it'll be broken still after taking the placebo. But because the placebo suggests that something of value has been done, the patient will often go away thinking that something has been done. In fact, studies indicate that as many as one in three people will report an improvement in symptoms after taking a placebo. This is just an incredibly powerful phenomenon. How powerful is it? Well, it's so powerful that recent studies have suggested that placebos can be effective even when the patient knows they're taking a placebo. You see, placebos are often used to study the effectiveness of various types of painkillers and antidepressants. This is because, again, doctors have observed that people will report that they feel better even after being given a sugar pill. And so when doctors are wanting to test the effectiveness of new medicines aimed at reducing unwanted physical or psychological pain, they will administer the medicine to a test group alongside a placebo. A part of the test group will receive the medicine, some will receive a placebo, and the thinking goes, if a painkiller is going to be proven effective, then it has to outperform those patients who've been administered a placebo. Since again, as many as one-third of all people will report an improvement in symptoms after taking a placebo. If the medicine does not outperform the placebo, then whatever improvements the patient reported after taking the new medicine, they're assumed to be purely psychological in nature. 
The patient felt better simply because the mere act of taking a pill suggested that their symptoms would improve. Well, in the past 25 years, scientists began to notice that fewer and fewer medicines seemed to outperform placebos. And this got some of them thinking that maybe the problem wasn't the new, that new painkillers were no longer effective. Maybe the problem, rather, is that the placebo effect is affecting more and more people. Like maybe people's blind faith in medicine is increasing. Maybe more and more people just assume that the medicine they take will work. And this, in turn, helps them feel better through the power of suggestion. And maybe this is happening at such an increased rate that it's now almost impossible to tell the difference between a placebo and a painkiller. In other words, perhaps placebos are now just as effective as painkillers in managing some types of pain. This led Harvard School of Medicine professor Ted Kapchuk to run a series of experiments. He wondered, what if people knew they were taking placebos? Would they still have the same effect? And so he ran a series of tests in which test groups suffering from conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome or migraines uh, were given actual proven medicine alongside a placebo simply labeled placebo. The placebo groups weren't deceived into thinking that they were taking anything other than a placebo. Instead, they were told that they were taking a placebo, and they were told what placebos are and the effects that they've often had in test studies, how people have been helped through the power of suggestion offered by placebos. And guess what? The placebos totally still worked. People took the placebo and were like, yeah, that happened to me. I still felt better. In the words of one woman woman suffering from IBS, quote, I know it's crazy. I felt fantastic. I was able to go out dancing and see my friends again. One study demonstrated that uh, that the placebo was was as effective as a real migraine medicine in as many as 50% of patients. So even suggesting that the power of suggestion works, works. It's that powerful. Just tell someone the power of suggestion will make you feel better, and they'll say, yeah, it totally did. It helped me. It's just crazy. This is how powerful placebos can be. Even though they don't really do anything, they'll still make a person feel like something's happened. Well, this morning we're in James 1, 22-27, and what we learn in this passage is that when it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge can function very much like one of these placebos. It can make a person feel like something has happened in their spiritual life when, in fact, nothing of any real value has taken place. Of course, the problem in this is not knowledge in and of itself, it's not as if knowledge is nothing more than a spiritual sugar pill. There's a reason why Paul urges us to, quote, be transformed by the renewal of the mind in Romans 12, too. And that's because he understands that knowledge is critical to spiritual growth. And so from a spiritual perspective, knowledge does have a medicinal quality to it. It can actually heal us. But at the same time, it can also act as a kind of placebo whereby the Christian feels like something of substance has happened, although it hasn't, simply because of what they think it inevitably produces or signifies. And that's what James is seeing as he looks at the church. 
as he diagnoses the problems that are facing the church, he sees that it's suffering from a kind of cancer. Its members possess a love for the world that's causing it to abandon their love for one another. Trials of various sorts are sweeping across the body. And rather than respond to this hardship with the kind of sacrificial love that was practiced in the early church, its members are turning on one another. They aren't helping one another. Uh, They're looking out for themselves only. And this selfishness is leading to all kinds of conflict as, it's make its member, as it makes its members unable to respond to injustice in a biblical way. So the body is in a serious state of decay. This germ of worldliness is causing the church to rot away from the inside. And yet in spite of this, there are apparently many Christians still saying to themselves, I feel fine. I don't get it. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. It would seem that this is happening in particular as they engage in conflict with one another. These, these conflicts are arising and as they're being confronted with their faults that are causing this rot, their response is to essentially say, I don't know what you're talking about. I feel fine. You know, I think the problem is your diagnosis. You need to go back to med school. As James observes this phenomenon taking place, he discerns that there's a kind of placebo at work in the body, and that placebo is knowledge. Christians are being confronted with their sin, but rather than receiving that correction, they're refusing to change. And the reason is because they think that because they know the truth, they're already well. They think that their knowledge of the truth is a sufficient demonstration of their spiritual health. And so because of that, they're refusing to get the underlying disease, which is the real problem. The problem is this cancer of worldliness inside of them, and they're refusing to get that treated. The results of this course of action, obviously, are going to be simply disastrous. After all, a painkiller can be helpful in mitigating the symptoms of a disease like cancer. And so in that sense, a placebo might be effective in managing a patient's pain as they're undergoing the treatment that will actually address the underlying disease, but it cannot be taken as a substitute for said treatment without absolutely disastrous results. And that's what James sees taking place. And so as he writes this this morning's passage, he writes in order to explain to them that their knowledge has not cured them nor should they necessarily confuse their knowledge with healing. Yes, there is a kind of knowledge that brings healing, but there's also a kind of knowledge that only makes one feel like they've been healed, and they need to know the difference between the two. And so as James writes, he writes in order to expose this placebo effect. And he does this so that his readers might then go and receive the treatment they need to get well. He's trying to unmask... As odd as this probably sounds, uh, he's unmasking the deceitfulness of knowledge. He's trying to show them how mere knowledge of the gospel, without an effective application of the same, is folly. He's trying to show them even how it can lead to their destruction rather than their salvation. And James does this in two parts. First, he explains the problem of mere knowledge. Once again, that's the problem of mere 
knowledge. And then second, he explains the result. Once again, that's the result of mere knowledge. And just so you know, by mere knowledge, I mean knowledge without application, knowledge without action. James sees a deceitfulness in this kind of knowledge. And once again, he exposes this deceitfulness in two parts. Uh, First, by addressing the problem of mere knowledge, and then second, the result of mere knowledge. Uh, This morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first part. That's the problem of mere knowledge. James says that the problem with mere knowledge is that it's inconsistent with the gospel. Once again, the problem with mere knowledge is that it's entirely inconsistent with the gospel. We find this in verses 22 to 25. After following up his instructions to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, he says, verses 22 to 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." In this passage, James introduces a confusing, if not almost paradoxical, phrase. And that's this phrase, the law of liberty. Verse 25, James says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, and then he explains what he means by this perfect law, he calls it the law of liberty. There's apparently great benefit in, in, in adhering to this standard since he says whoever looks at this law and perseveres, and once again he explains what he means by perseverance right after this. He says, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So the idea is that the one who does this law, quote, will be blessed in his doing. Obviously, this means that there must be some benefit in keeping this law, but what does he mean by this phrase, law of liberty? Aren't those two ideas mutually exclusive? Isn't liberty the absence of law? Well, not necessarily. And once you understand why that's so, I I think the point that James is driving at here in the first part of this passage really starts to open up. So what is this law of liberty? How can one even have a law of liberty? I think probably the most succinct way of describing this concept is by pointing to our own Constitution. We would say that we're a free nation, right? And yet at the same time, we're a nation of laws. And perhaps no document better captures the tension between these two concepts than our own own Constitution. The Constitution is a document that serves as the foundation of our legal system, and yet it is a document that was written at a time when we were declaring our independence from Great Britain and forming our own system of government. One of the primary ways that we expressed our freedom from tyranny was by rejecting the system of laws forced upon us by the British monarchy and replacing it with our own system of laws. We expressed our independence, our liberty 
by creating our own system of laws, laws which reflected our own values as a people. These were not values that were foisted upon us, they were our laws. This is perhaps one of the greatest expressions of liberty that there is. Not Not freedom from laws, but the freedom to create your own laws. Laws which structure your nation according to your own system of values. I think we'd all recognize this point, right? I mean, suppose that we came to another people, another nation, and forced them to accept the standards of our own constitution. And I don't think we'd call that a free nation, would we? They might have a kind of freedom due to the values that are embedded in and preserved by the U.S. Constitution, but we wouldn't really call them a free people because those values are being pressed upon them by an outside force. Freedom for a nation means the power of self-governance. That's the sort of liberty our our founding fathers fought for. Not freedom from governance generally, but for the power of self-governance. Liberty for them meant being ruled by their fellow Americans rather than by King George. And the Constitution, of course, was the document then written to explain and establish this new system of government. So the Constitution is a system of law, but it could be described as a law of liberty. And by that, I don't simply mean that it's a system of laws that protect our liberties. I mean, rather, that it's a system of laws created as an expression of our liberty. They are our laws, written by us and not outsiders, because we are a free people. No one rules us. We rule ourselves. Well, the people of Israel also had a system of laws like this. For them, it was the Mosaic Law. I know that probably sounds weird, considering how we tend to view the Mosaic Law today. After all, the Scripture speaks of us as being freed from the Mosaic Law. For example, speaking of the Mosaic Law, Paul says to the Galatians, For you are called a freedom, brothers, seemingly implying that they were not bound to obey the Mosaic Law in the same way that the Old Testament Jew was. And so this seems to paint the Mosaic Law in a negative light today. We tend to see the Mosaic Law as a kind of slave master from which we must be freed. But for the Jew who was at the foot of Mount Sinai when it was first delivered, the law of Moses was just the opposite. It was a sign not of their bondage, but of their freedom. In fact, you know how our Constitution has a preamble? I'm sure you probably do. It's very, very famous. It goes, uh, the preamble says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our prosperity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the the United States of America. That, That preamble serves to explain the reason for the establishment of the Constitution. It was created in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. The founding document that preceded the Constitution, uh, which was the Articles of Confederation, it didn't do those things very well. It did not, for instance, ensure domestic tranquility or provide for the common defense. And so the Constitution was written in order to form a more perfect union. Well, the Jewish equivalent to the U.S. Constitution was the Mosaic Law, specifically the Ten Commandments. 
And it also established at, uh, it was established at the time of their nation's founding, and it too has a kind of preamble. And it goes like this, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the statement that leads off the Ten Commandments. And it's given in order to serve as the basis for that document. And so what is the basis? It's the fact that God delivered Israel out of bondage in order to serve Him. God says, you've been freed, and so now these are the rules that I'm giving so that you might serve Me. If you can think of it this way, you know how our Declaration of Independence begins by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, this statement is very much like that one, and that it's the and that it's beginning with a foundational truth that serves as the basis for this new system of order. And again, what's the basis for that system of order? It's Israel's freedom from bondage. Remember, Pharaoh wouldn't let Moses take the people out into the the wilderness to worship. He made them stay to make bricks. When God delivered them, He was freeing them so that they might worship Him. The law wasn't a burden in this sense. At least it wasn't supposed to be. No, it was meant to be a privilege. It was meant to represent how the believing Jew wanted the world to be ordered. Since it reflected the will of God, who, quote, brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so the Mosaic Law, this was their law of liberty. And that it reflected the system of governance that the free Jew adhered to. When Gentile nations came in and imposed their own system of government on the Jews, systems which would often inhibit the practice of the Mosaic Law, it was then that the Jew considered themselves in bondage, not when they were under the commands of Moses. It's like the Jews said to Jesus when He told them in John 8, 31. He says, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answer by saying, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you will become free? Now, of course, the the level of blindness in that answer is pretty astonishing since clearly they had been enslaved to other peoples many times. But all the same, this answer still reflects the way the Jewish people viewed themselves under the Mosaic structure. They weren't slaves under that structure. Instead, it reflected the the fact that they were a free people. Passover was their 4th of July. The Ten Commandments was their constitution. These things reflected that they were a free people. The only difference between our notion of governance and theirs is that for them, while freedom did mean the freedom of self-governance, of following a system of laws that they chose to follow, it did not include the freedom to create these laws whole cloth according to their own desires. And that's because at the core of the Jewish belief system was this idea that there is one God who is fundamental reality and whose will reflects truth, whose will determines good and evil, and this God delivered them from slavery. And that second part, by the way, that's really important because it means that there's a sense in which Israel is indebted to God. Once again, this comes out in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the first commandment begins, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I don't know if you're catching the flow in that sequence of thought, but there's a sense of obligation in that. I won't try to delve into the 
the, the details of ancient Near Eastern contracts uh, this morning, but basically what God is saying here is, I delivered you, and so now you owe me. Now, that's not in the sense that the Israelites have to pay back God for their freedom because there's nothing they could do to ever, that they could ever give to God to pay off that debt, nor is there anything that they could give to Him of value if they tried, but there's still a sense of obligation here. God is telling them, because I freed you, I now have rights to you. And I didn't free you for no purpose. I freed you so that you might serve me. So here's where I want you to, want you to begin. Here are my Ten Commandments. This is why I compare this opening statement to the preamble of our Constitution. The statement doesn't just declare the basis of this new document, uh, which of course is the Israelites' freedom. It also declares the purpose. They've been freed to serve God. So the Israelite doesn't get to create the system of laws that govern them. Rather, those laws are given to them by God. It's their law of liberty, but all the same, it is still a law. There's obligation in these commands. It's an obligation that flows out of the grace that God has shown Israel in delivering them from slavery. It's an obligation that should be viewed as a privilege, as something that any rightly thinking Jew would want to do. But all the same, it's an obligation. And this means that it is still a law. A law that must be obeyed. And what's really interesting about this system of laws, which Israel is obligated to obey, is that it's based on their identity both as creatures generally and as Israelites specifically. We sometimes forget this when we consider the nature of the first five books of the Bible, but remember that all these books are written at the time of Israel's exodus including the book of Genesis. So like when you're reading Genesis, you need to read it in light of Israel's deliverance from Egypt because that's when Moses wrote it down. How is that relevant as it relates to the Mosaic Law? We'll take the fourth commandment, for instance. The command to observe the Sabbath. Why did God give Israel that command? God explains the reason in two parts in Exodus 31. In verse 13, he begins the explanation by saying, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Then in verse 17, God concludes this explanation by saying, It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So then why does God command Israel to keep the Sabbath? It goes back to two reasons. First, it goes back to the idea that God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. And then second, it goes to the idea that it is this God, this God who made the heaven and the earth in six days. It's this God who sanctifies Israel. In other words, the Sabbath points Israel through the events of the Exodus, back to the act of creation, and it reminds them that they haven't been set apart to serve just any God. No, they belong to Yahweh, the Lord, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. They are servants of the King of the entire earth. That shouldn't just strike them with fear as they consider the consequences of disobedience. It should also fill them with confidence as they take their plunge into Canaan and take their place in the midst of the great empires of the earth. 
Deuteronomy 5.15 reiterates this point. There Moses restates the Ten Commandments and he explains the Sabbath commands as follows. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He ties the Sabbath back to their freedom as Israelites. Israel has been freed from Egypt and this requires that they keep the Sabbath as a way of both honoring the God who delivered them and remembering the rest that He delivered them into as He brought them into the land of Canaan. You see this, you see similar ideas come up in other commandments of the law as well. For instance, Leviticus 25. God forbids the Jews from enslaving their fellow Israelites. He even forbids loans at interest for their fellow Israelites. He says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. So the most an Israelite can do is take another Israelite as a kind of indentured servant until the year of Jubilee, which, by the way, happened to be after seven Sabbaths of years or essentially every 50th year. And when God explains the reason for this restriction, He he explains verses 42 to 43, Leviticus 25. He says, For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So he ties this command back to their identity as a nation of redeemed slaves. No one is supposed to own a fellow Jew as a slave because the Jew is already owned by God. They can't be bought because they already have an owner. They're a kingdom of priests and they belong to God. This is why God lets them own slaves from other nations and not their fellow Jews. The Gentiles do not enjoy this privileged status because they were not redeemed by God with an outstretched arm and so it's okay to own them. Regarding these peoples, God says, verse 46, You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule over, uh, one over another ruthlessly. So we see this idea that they're, the commands are based on their identity coming out in other passages as well. We see this, come out, this idea come out in a passage that's particularly relevant in today's verses, uh, relevant to today's verses, and that's Deuteronomy 24, 17-22. And I'd actually like you to turn there Read this passage along with me because we're building to a climax here. I know it sounds like we're really in the Old Testament. What does this have to do with what we're talking about today? We're building here, okay? Uh, This passage, I think, is really, really relevant to today's verses. Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 to 22. God says this. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. 
It shall be for the, for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And look what he says here, verse 22. Why? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. God gives Israel this command. He tells them that they need to provide for the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. Reason being, they too were once sojourners in a strange land. As a nation of slaves, they too were once in a weak and vulnerable position. So they know what it's like to be in the position of the orphan or the widow, with no one around to provide for them, no one around to protect them. They know what it's like. Because that's the position that they were in when God came in and rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh. So God commands Israel to have compassion to the weak because they were once a weak people in need of compassion. God showed them that kind of compassion and so now He commands them to extend that same sort of compassion to others. Such compassion is right. It is just actually in light of the mercy that God has delivered to them. Now flip back over to James 1. I want us to read this morning's passage one more time. And I want you to see if you can gain a sense of what James is doing with this analogy that he makes here as he compares, quote, the law of liberty to a mirror which reveals one's reflection. And as you turn back there, I want you to consider once again who James is writing to. James 1.1, James tells us that he's writing to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. In other words, he's writing to his fellow Jews. They're Jewish Christians, but they're still fellow Jews. Jews that would be familiar with passages like Deuteronomy 24. And he's writing to the Jews in the dispersion specifically. So these are Jews who are scattered out among the nations. Remember, many of the converts that that men like Paul made were Greek-speaking Jews. He went to the synagogues and he converted both God-fearing Gentiles and Greek-speaking Jews. James writes to these Jews, these sojourners. And he probably writes to them at a time when not only are many Judean Christians being driven out into the dispersion because of the persecution that's taking place back in Judea, meaning that they too are now sojourners among their countrymen in these Greek-speaking lands... They're displaced people without a home and without a stable income probably and without an effective support network, meaning they're incredibly vulnerable. He's not only writing to the Jews in the dispersion under this circumstance, but he's also writing them at a time when they don't appear to want to be overly generous with one another. We've already seen this come out in chapter 1. We're going to see it come out in greater force as we get into chapter 2. Basically, brothers are, are, are turning brothers away who are in need with nothing more than a simple, I'll pray for you. They're not offering any kind of substantial financial help, not of the kind that we see taking place early in the book of Acts. James is writing to his Jewish brothers under these circumstances, and then he writes this, verses 22 to 27, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, And not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, can you start to gain a sense of what James is driving at here in this passage? You see, when the Old Testament Jew failed to obey such basic commandments as the Sabbath, when they failed to take care of the orphan and the widow in their midst, they weren't just breaking some abstract moral code. No, they were forgetting their identity. They were forgetting their history as a people. Even more than this, they were forgetting the grace that God had shown them in their lives because the commands they were given were based on that history of deliverance. And that's what James readers are doing as as well. Whenever they turn a blind eye to one of their suffering brothers or sisters. Trials have swept into this church. Brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering. And those more established Christians are refusing to come to their aid for fear of losing their place in the world, their well-being and comfort. And James is saying that when that happens, they're not just simply disobeying. They're forgetting who they are and where they came from. They're allowing their thinking to be shaped by the world and its philosophies rather than by the gospel. This is why he says at the end of verse 27 that true religion isn't just found in visiting orphans and widows. It's also found in keeping oneself unstained from the the world. It's this worldly, earthly, listen, James is going to call it demonic thinking that's causing them to forget who they are. And that is why they don't love one another. Are you following me here? I really want to make sure you understand this because this distinction that I'm trying to make here is so vital and it's going to play a major role in the development of what James says over the next few chapters. Israel was not commanded to obey God in order to earn God's favor. They were commanded to obey rather because they had already received God's favor. To state the matter more plainly, they were not obligated to obey in order to earn their salvation. They were obligated to obey rather as a result of their salvation. God's deliverance of the nation from bondage dictated that they conduct themselves according to a particular set of principles that were commiserate with their identity as a redeemed people. Among these principles were not only commands like what we find here at the end of verse 27, where James says that true religion includes keeping oneself unstained from the world. This would include commands like the Sabbath laws, like laws against idolatry, whereby God commands Israel to be absolutely holy, completely single-minded, undivided in their devotion to God, because their salvation means they belong to Him. No, these principles not only include commands like that, but they also include commands like... Show compassion on the orphan and the widow. Reason being, they too were once a people in need, and God showed them compassion. And so now justice dictates that they do likewise. And so to ignore these principles, to disobey these commands, that's not merely disobedience to a a more abstract moral authority. No, it's a reflection of the fact that they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten even the grace of God in their life. 
And so when a Jew does not obey this command to care for their brethren, and when they allow their love for this world, for this life, to crowd out their concern for their brethren, do you know what this is like? It's like a man looking at his face in the mirror, and in the moment he walks away, he forgets what he looks like. That is what it's like to claim knowledge of God's Word and then go away and fail to do what it says. It's not just a failure to obey. It's a failure to remember. I want you to have this point clear as we get into chapter 2 and James starts talking about faith, about how faith without works is dead. His point there is not that works are a requirement for salvation. His point, rather, is that true faith, saving faith, will inevitably express itself in obedience because of the obligation that flow out of one's knowledge of the gospel. And yes, there are gospel obligations. These are not obligations for salvation. They're obligations of salvation. I think this is one of the chief distinctions between Christianity and every other religion on the planet. Perhaps even the chief distinction. Like virtually every other religion, we believe that there are laws that the believer is obligated to obey. But the difference for the Christian is that these are obligations that flow out of our salvation not obligations that we must fulfill for our salvation. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion on the planet. In fact, it's the difference between genuine Christianity and false Christianity. Every false religion says you must obey in order to achieve God's favor. Favor. Christianity says you must obey because you've already received God's favor. Or to state it still another more succinct way, For every other religion, the imperative precedes the indicative. For the Christian, it's the other way around. The imperative follows the indicative. Every other religion gives the command, you must obey. That's the imperative. And the reason is so that you can achieve the indicative. You are saved. You must obey so that you can be saved. The Christian flips that order. We say you are saved. Therefore, you must obey. And so for the one who does not do, their problem is not merely that they do not do, it's that their failure to do means that they do not truly know. At least not as well as they ought to know. Again, like the Jew who does not keep the Sabbath, or the Jew who does not observe the year of Jubilee, or who goes back into their field to pick up the gleanings of their fields, they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten the indicative statements that obligate and even drive and motivate them to observe the imperatives. This is why they don't obey. It's not merely a moral failure. It's a failure of faith. It's a failure of belief. It's like we've seen just recently as we've explored the the motivations for sin and obedience. It's the promises of God that compel us to move forward in spite of temptation. We saw this just just, uh, recently in 2 Peter 1. Peter says that God has, quote, granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. It's the promises that transform us. Obedience comes through faith. And this is why after exhorting his readers to therefore supplement their faith with virtue and so on, Peter concludes, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
the one who does not do, their problem is that they've forgotten who they are and what God has done for them. So you see, the problem for the Christian who does not do, it's not simply that they do not know. It's that there's a sense in which they do not believe. It's that although they know, they do not remember. They stare into the depths of the gospel, and in the moment they go away, they immediately forget of what sort they are. Now next week I'm going to come back and I want to spend some more time explaining why this is so. And when we do that, I'll get into more detail about how our identity in Christ shapes our obligations and how the one who does not fulfill these obligations therefore has forgotten their identity in Christ. I haven't addressed that very much today so far. I haven't really talked about how our redemption shapes the kinds of commands that we're expected to fulfill. We've mostly discussed how that worked for Israel and their redemption, because I think that background informs what James is driving at here. Uh, But just so we're clear, I don't think the law of liberty is the Mosaic law. I know it probably sounds like I'm saying that just based off of what we've covered here today, but that's not what I'm trying to say. I think James has a different standard in mind, one that's shaped by the gospel, but one which is also certainly informed by the Mosaic law, and which is therefore going to have a lot of similarities. I'll try to discuss this more as we dive further into this, the inconsistency between mere knowledge and the gospel. Uh, In other words, yes, we are going to come back and spend one more week on the problem of mere knowledge. We haven't even made our way through the first part of James' effort to expose the placebo effect of knowledge. And I almost want to apologize for that, except that I think this concept is so vitally important that I'd rather overstate it than understate it. So let me be blunt here. The degree to which, let me say this very clearly, the degree to which you will mature in Christ will be measured in large part by how well you understand what I'm saying here today. And I don't think I'm alone. I think James would agree with me because the concept that he's communicating here is going to serve as the foundation for the rest of this book. The whole rest of of this book is going to address themes that James is touching on here. It's the heading of the rest of the book. It's like I've said as we've discussed the inner workings of sin and temptation. You will ultimately do what you believe to be true. You will act according to your convictions. And I'd venture to say that the problem for many of you is that there's a disconnect between what the Bible says about who you are in Christ and the rest of your life. And that is why you are not holy. That may be because you've never tried to make the connection between the gospel and how you live. Like, like maybe you've, you haven't understood that there are gospel obligations, that our liberty or, or, or our identity in Christ actually is supposed to shape what we do. And so your problem is that you've never considered those possibilities, and so the world continues to shape your values. Or, and I think this is the greater problem for most Christians, you do understand much of that but you simply forget. You go home after church, you flip on the television, you jump on your smartphone, the world begins to push its values and philosophies on you, and you immediately forget who you are. You're like the man in this passage. You're examining your identity in the mirror one second, and then you walk away and it's all gone. You can't even remember what you look like anymore. You probably think your problem is a lack of self-control. That's why you keep falling into sin, because you lack sufficient willpower. 
But I doubt that's really the problem for most of you. The problem for most of you more likely comes back to a matter of awareness. You either do not realize that the gospel is meant to shape your life in a meaningful, tangible way, or knowing this fact, you quickly forget it. And that's not to, but just to be clear, that's not to devalue the role that self-control plays in sanctification. Self-control, after all, is a fruit of the Spirit. I'm just saying that more than likely that's not your main problem. That's not the main reason you keep falling back into sin. Your main problem is forgetfulness. You lack sufficient awareness of the fact that you are a new creation, that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. This is what we've been studying this year in our home fellowship groups, right? You remember the church at Ephesus? Revelation chapter 2? Jesus commends that church, right? He praises them for the fact that they have knowledge. He praises them for their endurance in the faith. But He says He has this one thing against them. And what is that? You remember it, guys, right? He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's a church that knows, but which does not do. Just like the church that James is writing to, they're fighting for truth, but they're neglecting the love that Christ commands them to have for one another. So what does Christ tell them to do? He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He says, go back and remember who you are and how you once lived because of that, and go back to doing that. He's not just interested in their knowledge. He wants the love that's supposed to accompany that knowledge. And he says that the way to regain this love is by going back and remembering the position from which they've, from which they've since fallen. Again, next week we're going to dive more into the kinds of obligations that flow out of the, out of the gospel. But with all that we've said here today, I would just ask you in the meantime, do you remember where you came from, Christian? Do you remember where you came from? We'll get into this more next week, but there are basically three types of hearers only. Three kinds of people who merely know the truth without acting on it. Uh, the first kind is the antinomian. They're the one who says it doesn't really matter what we do since we've been forgiven in Christ. Now, I'd say the problem with that sort of person is, isn't so much that they've forgotten the truth, as much as, it, as much as it is that they've failed to completely understand it. Like there are portions of the gospel that they're leaving out. They've looked into the law of liberty, but the mirror is cracked. And because of that, they don't really understand of what type they are. They've never seen a good reflection of their natural face because the mirror is cracked and shattered. There are essential pieces missing that would help them to know who they are after they've walked away. The second kind is what's often called the backslidden Christian. They're the one who makes a profession of faith at one time and then blatantly turns away. This is the Christian who knows that they're not obeying and that they still persist in their disobedience. Uh, Sometimes these Christians are not truly Christians. And sometimes they are. Uh, They persist in disobedience, but only for a time, eventually, they do repent. And of this second type, the disobedient Christian, I'll explain how they're forgetting the gospel next week. The third kind of forgetful Christian is the most interesting of these three. And that's the legalist. They're the one who boasts about all they know 
And of all the scrupulous details, how scrupulous they are in observing every little detail of the law, all the while neglecting the weightier portions of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They strain the gnat and they swallow the camel. Of these two kinds, I'd assume that this is probably the category that you're more prone to fall into. If you're showing up to church every week, there's probably a better chance that you're a legalistic Christian than you are a blatantly rebellious one. And from what James says in the rest of the letter, I think this is also the type of hearer that James is addressing here specifically. These are Christians who boast about what they know. They declare, we know that God is one. And they think that that belief is somehow significant in and of itself. They're not in open rebellion. They think they're religious. And that's why James has to explain to them the meaning of true religion right here. Well, do you know what the problem is for this type of hearer? James tells us right here. Their problem is that they've forgotten who they are. True religion is expressed in care for the orphan and the widow, and they don't do that. And James says that the reason is because they've forgotten who they are. This is the danger of knowledge. It can act like a spiritual placebo. As the Christian advances in their knowledge, they begin to say to themselves, you know, I don't really need to pay attention to that gospel stuff anymore. That's baby stuff. That's milk. And I've moved on from that. I'm eating meat now. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Yes, the Christian does need to eventually move on to solid foods, but not to the neglect of the nourishment provided by the gospel. Just like milk is essential to bone growth, right? So also is the gospel essential to our continued sanctification in Christ. It's not one or the other, gospel or advanced doctrine. It's both. You need both the pure milk of the gospel and the more advanced doctrine that adds meat to that bone. It's the gospel that gives form and shape to the more advanced doctrines so that the believer continually grows into the form that God's designed for them, which is the image of Christ as expressed in their sacrificial love for others. The religious hypocrite, however, does not have this form. Because in their love for the more advanced doctrines, they've neglected the more basic truths that give shape to it. And what makes matters worse is that they don't even realize it. They they think that because they know so much more than the people around them, then surely that's a sign of their maturity. Their knowledge is acting like a kind of placebo. Again, they have a kind of bone cancer that's making their body horribly disfigured. They look grotesque. As the people around them are trying to tell them about it and urge them to seek treatment, they're saying to themselves, but I don't understand, I feel fine. Where is the hope for one such as this? It's a long look into the law of liberty. The mirror of the gospel is their hope. In fact, it won't just show them their condition, it will show them the cure. Their healing will come as they stare into the mirror and remember who they are in Christ. Again, I'll try to spend some more time next week explaining why this is so, but in the meantime, I'll just ask you one more time. Do you remember where you came from, Christian? Do you remember who you are? How often do you reflect on the more basic but essential truths of your faith? Do you think that you've outgrown them? Or do you return to them daily for nourishment? 
If you're like one of James' readers and that the reason you fail to meet the standard for true religion that James shows us here is because of your knowledge, this is where I'd encourage you to begin by going back and remembering once again who you are in Christ. And if you have trouble remembering what that looks like or if you fail to see what that has to do with your love for other people, I'd encourage you to be here for part two of our study of this passage next week. Let's pray.